0: We're we're starting just on the second topic. Last week we were finishing up biblical interpretation and then we uh, started, we kind of got, I guess you could say off topic. It wasn't really off topic. It was more like uh, taking the topic at hand as it related to truth and meaning and extending it to some elements of society. We also extended it um, to elements of uh, faith as it related to a principle that we call the weaker brethren principle and conscience. And so I thought it was very valuable and, and something which in our last session, last um, um, uh, group of sessions in the spring, we one of the things that we were going to talk about is, is uh, Christians in society or Christians in culture. And I thought that this actually kind of touched on that really well. So it was very valuable. We are going to be starting this week into uh, defining faith. And really what, what we're going to do, obviously faith is a very important topic scripturally. Uh, the nature of faith is really the essence of what it means to be a believer. Um, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved uh, is the essence of the gospel. And, and then the Bible says that we walk by faith and not by sight. And so faith is very important. So what I'd like to do is go to just several passages of scripture. We're going to start in Romans 3 uh, and we're going to talk about... Um, James chapter 2, and then we're going to talk about Hebrews 11, and seek to simply define faith. Uh, define what it is by w- how the Bible teaches about it. Hebrews 11, which is probably the most definitive fa- passage, is defining what faith is primarily by examples of faith. And if if we uh, um, had more time, as a matter of fact, we could do an entire session, a full eight weeks, just walking through Hebrews 11 and going from Old Testament scriptural account to Old Testament scriptural account, uh, just defining faith, and I think that not only would that be you know be able to fill the time, but it would be a very valuable study. Something that perhaps you would like to take on your own. Uh, I, I give you um, within this uh, in in the Hebrew section, I'll give you where each example is given. I, I, I point you to the Old Testament passage where that example comes from, and if you wanted to just take one you know, one passage a week or or whatever the case was, and go to it and read that passage and, and see what the Bible has to say about it and, and, and see the faith in it, I think that would be very beneficial to you. So whether we finish defining faith or not this week, next week we will be doing the Spirit Realm. Uh, as it, Next week is October 31st, Halloween. Um, I want that one to kind of be on that day, talk about it topically um, and relevantly, and then we'll continue on with all of our other topics in, in the weeks to come. So defining faith. As we begin um, defining faith, I give you three important definitions. And these definitions are going to come up in Romans chapter 3 and 4. And they're words that we, we either use somewhat differently than um, the way that the Bible uses them or they're words that, that we would not be as familiar with. And uh, this week I've, I've tried to highlight all of the, the fill-ins here for you so that'll it make it a little bit easier for you to make sure that you're not missing out on anything. The first word that we are defining is justification. And I put here in the sense of salvation when we get to James chapter 2 we're going to see justification taught about in, in, or used the word justification in a slightly different way. But uh, we, uh, I define justification as an act of free grace whereby God pardons the sinner and accepts him as righteous on account of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So when we talk about being justified, the idea is that um, because of what Jesus did, God has pardoned me and accepts me as righteous. It doesn't mean that I am righteous. One of the mnemonics that sometimes people use um, to talk about justification is, uh, just to make it easy, they say justification just as if I never sinned. And and in one sense that's right, in another sense it's not, because it's not as if God doesn't know that we're a sinner, rather it's that that Jesus Christ has formed the sufficient basis by which God can see my sin and say it's forgiven, it's pardoned. I'm accepting you as righteous. Uh, It would be um, as if uh, um, you owe a, a great debt and somebody else pays that debt, well, you didn't pay the debt and I know I didn't pay the debt or you know you didn't pay the debt, but somebody else paid the debt and so it's done, right? It's The, the debt has been paid, therefore I've been pardoned, I'm, I'm accepted as having a clean record, a clean account, even though I'm not the one that paid that debt. Propitiation is the second word, and propitiation is the act of appeasing the wrath and securing the favor of an offended party. So when we talk about the word propitiation, it's particularly within the context of um, uh, uh, an offense and uh, appeasing the wrath of an offense um, whereby justification speaks of uh, a, it's, a, it's kind of a legal term. It speaks of the, the concept of um, pardoning, legally satisfying. Propitiation speaks of an appeasement of wrath or an appeasement of anger and then securing the favor. So similar terms but, but certainly slightly different in their, in their focus. And then the last word that we, use, uh, that we have here is imputation or to impute something. Imputation is charging or attributing the faults or successes of one to another. So generally, as we see it in the Bible, it's speaking of attributing um, the, the faults, our faults onto Jesus and Jesus' success or righteousness onto us. So we'll talk about the idea of imputed righteousness. I have imputed righteousness because I'm justified the righteousness of Jesus Christ is charged to me. Right? Is imputed upon me. On the cross, as Jesus is dying, uh, the Bible says in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus is, Jesus on the cross had our sin imputed to Him, charged on Him, uh, and... Um, He took upon himself that wrath or that that punishment. Questions about the terms? Alright, so we're going to start in Romans chapter 3 and uh, we'll be doing Romans 3 through through a portion of Romans 5 and then I give you these general topics, uh, these general overviews of what we're talking about within the passage and then we'll talk about the passage itself or read through the passage itself. And my, my object here, my goal, is that, um, as is always our goal in this class, our desire and our job is not to, uh, to just tell you what I think. I'm not just going to give you a topic and then I'm going to go off on all of the different reasons w- about why something is what it is or why I think this about that. Um, we're going to the Bible, we're seeing what the Bible says, and then we're drawing our understanding of what God expects from what the Bible says. And that's why that first topic of biblical interpretation was so important. Um, we've taken some of those things for granted. Other things you know, were just um, there before, but it is important that we, we take the Bible and we simply draw it out and say, what does the Bible say? And then the next step, of course, is, am I going to choose to believe it? And whether or not I choose to believe it, if the Bible is true, I'm still accountable, right? We all have that choice as to whether or not we're going to believe what the Bible says, but it's up to God whether or not uh, He holds us accountable and the Bible says He will. So, in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, the the theme of these 21 verses is that the law proves that we are all hopelessly incapable of pleasing God by personal righteousness. You can never be good enough to please God on your own. Uh, so, I, the, up here, the only part I give you is the, is the part that I've got bolded on your sheet. So, in, in verse 1, the Bible says, What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God, the law of God, the, the Old Testament. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid... Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our, righteousness commend the, if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? And he says here in parentheses, I speak as a man. God forbid, for, how, for, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory... Why yet am I also judged a sinner, and not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. So what Paul is arguing here is this. He says that, he, he's arguing that, that just because Jews are Jews, it does not make them saved. That just because Jews are Jews, that just because Israel is God's chosen nation, that does not mean that they are right with God simply by virtue of their ethnicity or by virtue of them being this chosen nation unto God. And, and so he says, well then, if, if that's my argument, then what advantage is there to being a Jew? He says, well, there's this advantage that they were given this leg up in understanding God because they were given the oracles of God. They were given the law of God. So the rest of the world, up till the point of Jesus Christ and, and such, was not given the law of God. They did not have that special relationship with God. They didn't have the law of God in their language. The law of God was in Hebrew. It was written in Hebrew. It was, it was in the Hebrew synagogues. That's where the law of God. So they had this special leg up on understanding what God wanted and what God didn't want. What God expected and what God didn't expect. But for all of that they still di- chose not to believe. And we know that they chose not to believe as uh, for the most part you know, as a nation the best evidence of that is that they're the ones that crucified Christ, right? They rejected Jesus Christ when He came and they put, they're the ones that put Him on the cross. So then Paul asks this kind of philosophical question. He asks, and this is verse 3, What if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God of no effect? Does it mean that, that faith doesn't work because some of the people that had the law of God didn't believe? Well, no. God is true whether or not we receive it or not whether or not we believe it or not God is justified and then he asks the question and he, he says that he speaks this question as a man when you see that in the Bible and there's a few places where Paul does this he's playing um, he he's, he's I guess you could say playing the devil's advocate, or he's coming at it from a humanistic perspective. So he's saying this is what a person who doesn't have faith would think, or this is what a person who doesn't understand the Bible would think. That's when he says, I speak as a man. That's what he means by that. Is These are people that, that are saying this because they don't understand doctrine, or they don't understand the Bible, or they don't understand God's teaching. So this statement... That that is is a, a humanistic statement, a, a man-centered statement, not a God or faith-centered statement. Is this, if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God? What shall we say? Is God unrighteous that who taketh vengeance? So if, oh yeah, Tom, I'm sorry about that. I forgot about Someone him. No one remembers Tom until he texts us. After <laughs> or <after> it says <laughs> we started yet? Oh, turn it up. You, can turn it up. you should call in a second. Okay. So Paul is asking this question, and the question is, uh, as, as he's kind of Hello Hello. Gotcha. We, we, we kind of started without you, Tom. Sorry. <laughs> We're in Romans chapter three. And we're going to be walking through several passages of scripture. So if you have a Bible handy, Romans 3 would help you here. The, the, oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Where am I going here? Yeah, it should be on its way. I don't know where he is, but... Okay, so Paul is saying, his, his question is this, if, if God's righteous, so if, if, if me not believing does not threaten God's righteousness and does not threaten God's program, and in fact Me not believing just as much shows God's righteousness. If I do believe, it shows God's mercy. If I don't believe, it shows God's holiness, right? It shows God's righteousness. And so if both of them work out to God's glory, then then why should God punish me? Why should God punish me for unbelief if even in unbelief I'm glorifying God? Why should God take vengeance upon me if even in unbelief I I glorify God? And and that's what he's asking here. Of course, he's speaking as a man. He says in verse six, "God forbid! For then how shall God judge the world?" God. So, so then, if if this is true that because uh, God is glorified even in my sin or my unbelief, which is true, if the, if if that means that God is unjust in taking vengeance, then God can't judge the world. He says in verse seven, "For if the truth of God hath abounded through my lie unto His glory, why am I judged a sinner?" If if God's truth is magnified by my lies, if by lying it s- simply serves to confirm or magnify God's truth, then why should God punish me for lying if I'm glorifying Him by lying? And so Paul uh, uh, reflects here that what had one of the, the slanderous reports that had cropped up in the early church is that people said these and, and this would have been the, the, particularly the Jews accusing Christians, the Orthodox Jews accusing Christians of this, that they believe that they can sin freely because even their sin glorifies God. And so he says, as, as it's slanderously reported, some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, verse 8. And he says, the damnation of that is just. Anybody that would would think that way, that you can do evil that good may come of it, and that because God is glorified even in my evil, therefore I should do evil their damnation is just. Um, they're, they're not walking according to the faith. So now we get to this bold part and this is where, where we're focusing. He, sa- he asks what then? Are we better than they? Are Christians better than uh, are, 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 are we, the, those who have believed, better because we have believed than those that have not, than those that have rejected? Well, no. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. And then he continues to quote Isaiah they are all gone out of the way, they are all together. Let me see. Let me see if, let me see if uh, I've got more here. Nope, that'll be the next chunk here. They are all gone out of the way. They are all become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb, an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps, which is a poisonous snake, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So it's not a Jew or a Gentile thing, right? Uh, it's... It's um, that we're all on this level playing field. And this, this, the playing field that is leveled is that no matter your culture, no matter whether or not you have the Bible or don't have the Bible, you are a sinner. I am a sinner. You are a sinner. And there is none that through their own effort can purchase, through their personal righteousness, can please God, can become worthy of, of God. And, and as we talk about faith, even as a believer, we're not just talking about saving faith, although Romans 3 is. We'll, we'll continue down the path. But as we talk about faith, this is so important, that faith is not about ex- explicitly what I'm doing. Faith is about a mindset, an outlook, a, a um, determination, and a conviction that there is God's way, And there is not God's way and I am going to find and pursue and stand upon God's way regardless of what that means for me. I'm going to do it God's way. I'm going to look for God's way. Give that to Charles, thank you. Um, So he says in, in verse 19, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified. There's that word, justified, in His sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So what purpose is God's law? As we read the Old Testament, you read, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, thou shalt not covet uh, thy neighbor's wife, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's land, all of those things... What is that intended to do? The law functions to show you that you fall short. And not only the law in its most explicit idea, right? Which the most explicit idea of a law is that it is supposed to regulate behavior, right? But when we say thou shalt not covet, that's not just regulating behavior, is it? That's regulating intention. That's regulating desire, thought. thought. And then as Jesus speaks in the New Testament in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, He, uh, he adds a, a layer to even some of those external law principles. He says in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you have been heard that it hath been said of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, that he that looketh upon a woman and lusteth after her in his heart, hath committed adultery in his heart with her already. And he says, you have heard that it hath been said of old time, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, that if a man hates his brother in his heart, he has committed murder, he has killed him, he has committed murder in his heart already and so by this standard what we find is that no man measures up right no man is able to measure up no matter how good that person has lived throughout their life and no matter how much righteousness they have engaged in i mean i I, i'm 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 a pretty squeaky clean guy personally i've never touched a drop of alcohol i've never had any drugs my wife was the first woman i kissed and on our wedding day um, you know th- th- this, and yet, for all of that, for all of the externalities that were done right, I am just as just as guilty as anyone else. I am just as much the adulterer for lusting after women in my heart. I am just as much the coveter. I am just as much the murderer for hating someone in my heart. A- and and so, the function of the law is not to, supposed to make us righteous. Now. Paul will go on to say that, if the, that that this is not the law's fault. The law was not bad. The problem is that we fall short. We, we're the problem. We can't measure up to God's law. And that's what the law is supposed to do. If you've ever read the Bible and you've read some of these, these expectations and you've just kind of fell under the weight and the burden of what God expects of you and just feeling like you can't measure up, that's what it's supposed to do, in one sense. Now, once Christ enters the picture, there's, there's supposed to be a new relationship. There's supposed to be a new perspective. But as far as the actual law itself, that's exactly what it's intended to do. It is intended to make you feel as though you can't measure up, because you can't, and I can't, and no one can, no matter how good we are. So that's Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, establishing for us that the law proves that we are hopelessly incapable of pleasing God by personal righteousness. There's no, there is no one. There is none righteous. doesn't matter how good you look. We all know that our hearts do not measure up to God. Right? Thoughts on this before we move on? Alright, on page 2 there, uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. Since man cannot please God through the works of the law, God made a way to please God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is where the faith part comes in, right? We are defining faith. And the first element of this definition, uh, we're defining saving faith. And then we'll go into talking about how to live a life of faith. So, in Romans chapter 3, 21 to 31, again, I give you on the screen the highlighted portions, the bolded portions in your notes. But I'll, I'll read the whole thing. Verse 21 says, But now the righteousness of God without the law, outside of the law, is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upo- upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. So it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or, or, or a non-Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a servant or a, a master, faith is the standard. There is this great leveling of sin. And as, as terrible as sin in, sin is. It, it's an amazing design of God that for, for we, who as humans, are, we're so tribal, right? We everything's factioned. We lot ourselves into factions by the color of our skin, and um, by by uh, our ideologies, and uh, by what we like, and by what we don't like, and, and, and um, by our talents. Right in high school, you got you got you got the, the, the stereotypical jocks and the and, and the geeks and the whatever. Right, We're, we are literally uh, we are literally parsing ourselves, lotting ourselves in by our skill sets. And for all, for all of the, the ways that we, we are tribal, God has created this system using the fact that we're sinners to level the playing field so that no matter whether or not you have money or don't have money, that's not going to be a disadvantage or an advantage to you. Uh, it's, it's not going to be a disadvantage or, to avan- uh, to, or, or an advantage if you're intelligent versus less intelligent or tall versus short, or uh, a Jew versus a Gentile. The, those advantages melt away under this singular standard that we are all sinners. And because the law it shows us that we can't measure up, that means that there has to be something. If, if God wants to make a way for us to be saved, it has to come outside of the law, right? It can't come through the law because the law is the thing that says you can't, you can't measure up. None of us can. And that's where Jesus Christ comes in. By faith unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace, verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation, there's that word which means to appease the wrath of God, a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of, the, of him which believeth in Jesus. So we're, And we've talked about faith in, in Christ before several times. It's always a good thing to rehash, though. So the, the system now that God has, has made, that He has erected, is this. You can't make it to God on your own. You can't make it to God through money, through religious actions, through your own personal righteousness. None of that can get you to God. Your your religious devotion can't get you to God, as if somehow only those people that knew enough to be able to get to a church or to be baptized or whatever it might be are the ones that can get to God. The Bible says no. The great leveler, equalizer is that we've all sinned and that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And through this system, God created this amazing system whereby He can be just. In other words, He can, he can righteously punish all sin while simultaneously, and, and here's one of our definitions, justify the ungodly. He can declare those who, who have fallen short righteous without marring justice and this is a real conundrum isn't it this is one of the reasons why you say you know when when people say the Bible is just a book written by man what man is going to think of this what man is going to think of this incredible system whereby God who must be just is not just gonna say well I'm just gonna ignore sin I mean that's kinda where our society is today right our society is in this state where because of my feelings I have to pretend like reality is not reality because of my feelings, I have to pretend like there's no such thing as objective males and females. Not, or my feelings are someone else's feelings. Because of our feelings, my feelings are someone else's feelings. I have to pretend like we need to just open our borders. And all of these debates are around this natural tendency of man to allow feelings and empathy to override justice and and uh, um, reason. Really. So. Mankind's propensity is, okay, God loves us. We're sinners. God's just going to overlook our sin. But if God overlooks our sin, then he's not just anymore, right? Because that's not justice. And if God is not just, then God is not God. Then God is just another man. Then God is just the same fallible human tendency to to overlook what is actually right in order to help those that He loves, which is absolutely not divine. So God created a system whereby He could be both just and He could show mercy. And He could justify, He could legally justify others. It's not even just, I'm just going to forget about your sin. That's not what happened. That's not what the cross is about. When you confess your sins, if you confess your sins maybe before bed or, 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 or when you feel conviction, and, and, and you're, if you're in a, if you're, you're in a habit of, of confessing your sin, as the Bible says we should do to the Lord, um, he's not just saying, yeah, okay, I'll just overlook it. The only reason why confession has any power, the only reason why a calling upon the name of the Lord to be saved has any power is because Jesus has already been punished, Justice has already been served, right? It's not that God is overlooking anything. It's that God has already meted out the punishment for it. And then faith is me saying, I believe that to be true, and I'm going to hang my life upon it. So verse 28, Therefore we conclude that man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So as we're defining faith, the first aspect of faith is that faith is not about what I do. Faith is is not about what I can do, what what I'm able to do. It's not about personal merit. As a matter of fact, that's the exact opposite of faith. And we'll see that as we continue. Verse 29 on your sheet there. Is he the God of the Jews only? Well, the answer is no. Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith, which would be the Jews, right? They, they get circumcised by law, uh, and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? So then the, is the law useless? God forbid. No, we establish the law. Faith faith doesn't make the law useless. Faith actually justifies the need for the law and the, the virtue of the law. And that brings us to Romans chapter 4. And this is where um, Paul sets out an example. And the example that he gives is of Abraham. Uh, one of the most important reasons why it's, it, it's, it's important that you understand or that you, you're familiar with your Old Testament, this is why we start out with that basic class, right, of getting through the Bible, it is because so much of what, what takes place in New Testament in principle is exemplified in Old Testament uh, history. And just as illustrations can really help uh, hammer home a point, the Old Testament is, in many ways, completely illustrative uh, of the principles of the New Testament as they they come out. So in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, again, you've only got the bold stuff on the screen. What shall we say then? That Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found... For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof the glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So we have a system here. Did Abraham, was he justified by works? Well, no. If we go back and we read, the Bible says in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So what brought about Abraham's righteousness was faith. Now, then Paul espouses this really important concept. To him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. If we could illustrate this one. You know, We talk about a gift and for a long time I didn't really understand what gifts were. When I, I I had this thing, I I think I was probably 14 years old, my sister was 16, and she wanted this CD radio player. And so I got it for her, and it was fairly expensive, and I got it for her for her birthday, and and, uh, her birthday is May 7th and mine is May 27th, so about 20 days apart. And so I gave her this gift, and uh, as much as I wanted to give her the gift, no joke, what was going through my mind is, wow, now she's going to get me something great right? She's going to get me something great for my birthday. My birthday comes around and she completely even forgets to get me something. And I held that over her head for years. So, um, so a- as, we, as this scenario plays out, did I actually give her a gift if I expected something in return? It's not a gift, is it? If I expect something or demand something in return, I have just made a barter, an exchange, I have I, there. There has been a a transaction of goods, but it's not actually a gift. If I demand or expect something in return, if I give someone something and then after I give it to them, uh, they start using it and I say, no, 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 I gave that to you. You can't use it that way. Well, well, then, did I really give it to them? I mean, is it theirs if I'm still attempting to to have control over over it? is it really a gift? If I have to work to be right with God, if I have to work to, to even establish salvation by grace, then it's not grace, is it? Then it's a debt. God has given me salvation and now I have to spend the rest of my life working it off like I'm in some sort of divine concentration camp. That's not grace. That's debt. But to the man that doesn't work for it, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. If I acknowledge I can't work for it, but I instead say, God, I recognize it to be a gift and I accept it as a gift of grace, that is the one who is justified. And so this is fascinating because literally what this means is that God, knowing our hearts, he does not justify any man until that man is willing to reckon the gift as grace and not debt. He knows your heart. And as much as you can try to, you know, redefine the terms or say, yep, I, I'm, I'm not trying to work. I'm, I, I'm believing on Jesus alone, but you actually are trying to work. See, God knows that, right? Others may not know that, but God knows that. He, you, you can't fool God. And the righteousness of faith only comes to those who reckon reckon it to be by grace. Who don't see it as a debt. Who don't see it as something that you can earn or that you have to work off but that it's a gift that God has given to us. So, uh, Paul then in verse 6 uses the he describes David. He says, even as David also describeth the blessedness of a man unto whom God imputeth there's that word to impute, to count uh, or to reckon, to to take um, one man's uh, righteousness, that would be Jesus' and, and put it on another man. Uh, unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sin uh, I, um, goodness, I keep losing my spot here. Um, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Instead he imputes righteousness. So then Paul again asks, does this blessing come only upon the circumcision? No. Only upon the Jews? No. Upon the uncircumcision also? Yes. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. When was faith counted righteous, uh, Abraham counted righteous? Interestingly enough, if you go back into the passage, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness prior to when God commanded him to be circumcised. So Abraham was not justified in circumcision, but uncircumcision. And again, Paul is trying to undo an argument that says you must be circumcised to be saved that was a merging of the Jewish, the Jewish traditions with the new Christian doctrines. Um, I'm going to go ahead and skip a little bit of this here just so that we can keep rolling. You can go to the next page, page 4. Um, I'm going to actually start just at the very end of page three, but you can stay on page four there. Verse 14 says, "For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect, because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. If you don't have any law, then you're then it's anarchy, and in anarchy, in there is no you you can't arrest a man if you don't have laws saying that something is wrong, right?" You can't impose, uh, impose judgment where there is no law. So, again, remember where Paul started this argument in, um, in verse 1, uh, excuse me, at the end of verse, uh, at the end of chapter 3, <laughs> if I can find it here, um, he asked, do we then make void the law? Does the law not matter any w- more? Well, no, because the law is the standard by which God is going to judge every man every man is going to stand before God one day and be judged against His law. Well, how does that mesh with the fact that no one can keep His law? So there's going to be two different people on Judgment Day, right? There's going to be those that stand before God, being judged by His law, and because they tried in some way, shape, or form, whether it be debt or whether it be unbelief or whether it be whatever it was, to work their way to God or, or, or simply reject God, the full force of the law will fall upon them and they'll be guilty. And then there will be another subset of people judged by the law and they will have reckoned the grace of God to be sufficient and they will have trusted in Him and their faith will be counted unto them as righteousness and on that day when the law is judged, they, uh, when they are judged by the law, they will be found not guilty, not innocent, Innocent and not guilty are not the same thing, right? We, we, we know that from O.J. Simpson, right? Innocent and not guilty are not the same thing. Just because a person is not guilty does not mean he's innocent. And so we won't be declared innocent, but we will be declared not guilty. And then we'll enter into the joy of the Lord because we have accepted that by grace through faith if you've accepted that by grace through faith. So therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. If you had to work for it, then the debt would have to be imposed upon you and you could never ever sustain that. The minute that you had to do that you have to do anything to get yourself to heaven, there is now a debt and you will fall short. But because it's by faith, by believing in God that justifies the ungodly, there can be grace. Shown to those who, are, who, who, who believe. Um, continuing in verse 16. To the end that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to uh, which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope, "...believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be." That's from Genesis there. "...and being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb." Picking up in verse 20. "...he staggered not at the promises of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he, that's God, had promised he was able also to perform and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. So here is the essence as we're defining faith. Why go to Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5 to define faith? We see this concept here that Abraham was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. That because God had said it, and, and notice the circumstances as we read them. He was 100 years old, Sarah was barren. She'd never had a child. She, her, her, her womb had been closed, as the Bible would describe it. And yet God says, you're going to have a, a child through Sarah. And Abraham was fully persuaded that what God promised, he was able also to perform. That is faith. Faith is not a, a state of looking at the circumstances as they exist through a material lens and then saying, well, This can be done and this can't be done because of the material circumstance I find myself in. Faith is taking the Word of God and saying, this is the world I live in, this is what the Word of God says, and I am, of course, going to submit myself to the world, the world, how it operates, until how the world operates stands in conflict to what the Word of God says or what the Spirit of God is telling me, at which point I follow that, even if I don't feel like I should, even if it doesn't make full sense to me, even if uh, ev- ev- even if it, it doesn't always add up, that is faith. Faith is that when there comes a conflict between what you feel and what God says, you trust what God says above what you feel or even what you perceive. You know, we all have. Uh, we we live in a very material world. There. there these chairs and these tables and we're here and we can see and we can feel and yet what what the bible testifies is that the things of god the, the statements of god in his word the word of god the promises of god these things are in fact more real and more dependable than anything that you can see anything that you can touch anything you can taste anything you can hear and faith is the process of coming to actually believe that rest upon it and rely upon that as opposed to just relying upon the things that you can see and the things that you can hear and the things that you can taste Paul finishes the chapter 4 he says now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed unto him that um, that his faith was imputed unto him for righteousness but also for us to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised for our justification. So he says we can have this same blessing to be saved by grace through faith alone. And finishing up our Romans study here, in Romans chapter 5, you have the fill-ins there. All men are justified only by faith, and it is faith, That pleases God. And we're going to come up, we're going to come upon this again in Hebrews. Hebrews is where we're really going to define faith in the broader sense. We started in Romans, though, to walk through this idea of saving faith, um, and and then that'll give us a good foundation for Hebrews. So, Romans chapter 1, therefore, or 5, verse 1, excuse me. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. That the offenses that are against us are satisfied. That as we step into the the word of God and the promises of God by faith, God and and, and His wrath against sin is appeased and you have peace with God. Verse 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we're saved by faith and then a Christian lives in the grace of God by faith rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God rejoicing in the expectation that one day we'll be with him and that our life is now has a different purpose. The life of the believer is is fundamentally different in purpose than others. One of the big problems that we have today in our society, especially among young people, is that they are lacking in purpose. See, purpose has been completely torn out of their lives and uh, that has been because they're, they have torn away, and this is what we talked about last week, they have torn away objective truth. And if you don't have objective truth and if, if you don't believe in objective truth, then, then where does purpose lie? Purpose can only lie in my subjective feelings, right? And so now we have people that are, are just longing for purpose and they're looking for it in any number of things. Uh, a large... Uh, a definer of purpose. See, and purpose is rooted in, for us, it's in God, right? It's in the plan of God. Well, if you don't have Jehovah as your God, well, your purpose is going to be found in something. You have to find some meaning in life or else you just float around until you are so miserable that you collapse in on yourself. Suicide rates are high for that very reason because there's just no purpose. There's no meaning in life anymore. So people are looking for meaning and they're finding it. They're finding it in all the wrong places. They're finding it in politics. They're finding it in ideologies. They're finding it in particularly identity politics, right? I have to fight for this arbitrary thing. And, and, and it has all the meaning in the world to them. It is the very essence of what their life means to fight for this identity. Why, why are so many people starting to, you know, why, why is the LGBTQ? And then all the other acronyms that might be added to that community just exploding today. Why, why are so many people? I mean, it, we've had a sliver of 1% of the population within that category for generations. And now all of a sudden, there's, there's so many more of them. Why? Because this creates a community where people can find meaning and purpose. Some of that is finding meaning and purpose in, in actually being a part of something. Some of them are simply finding meaning and purpose in being a victim. And so we have people that are pretending to be something that they're not or stating a victimhood that they don't have in order to find some meaning or purpose by being constantly angry. And anger gives them purpose and meaning. It gives them something to get them up in the morning so that they can get online and, and talk about how they're a victim so that they can uh, get in front of the news and talk about how they're victims. And, and they, they, they are, are longing for purpose, and they don't have purpose. And the Christian has purpose. But it's a fundamentally different purpose than any other religion, any other uh, um, world idea of purpose because we are not functioning for this life, for the things of this life, and that's not unique around, among religions. All religions, to some degree or another, say we're functioning for a life that is to come. But the unique thing about, about the Christian life is how that fundamental and unique um, purpose sets us the, the, it, within our mindset. The, the, the course that it sets us on is one that is so unique and so different. It it is so antithetical to what the world loves and to what the world pursues and to what the world desires. And that's the idea. So we, we have this hope in the glory of God, and this is what drives us. So we stand in this faith because we have access by faith into grace. And we stand in that grace... So we start by being justified by faith, and if you're not there, the rest of this doesn't make any sense. But if you've been justified by faith, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, by faith, without works, you have peace with God, and that gives you a brand new purpose. That sets you on a brand new path. And it totally redefines what what your life means. Um, Verse 3, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. So this purpose means that we can even suffer in this life and that's okay because we know that this life is not what matters except to the extent that this life is reflected in the life that is to come, except to the extent that this life builds up some reward for the life that is to come. And so I'm willing... To suffer, I'm willing to go. Uh, I'm willing to endure tribulation, not for its own sake, not because I get to, you know, I, I want to be the doormat for the world, but because I know that tribulation works in me patience, and patience works in me experience, and experience works in me greater hope, greater expectation of what is to come, and greater expectation of the ro- rewards that are to come. Verse 6, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth, shows his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What he's saying there is, is if God's grace has been so great that when we were enemies he died for us and then he gave us salvation, how much more do you think the blessings of actually serving him with your life will be? If the blessing, if when you were an enemy of his by not believing in Christ, you know, whether or not you thought fondly of Christ or not, before you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were on the wrong side of Him. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ on your savior, as your Savior, you are on the wrong side of Christ. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you get on the right side of Christ, and that is a tremendous blessing. And Paul says, if, if as an enemy Christ did this for you, and, and then you were reconciled to God, imagine the blessings that God gives to His friends. Imagine what God desires to give to those who will live in the hope of the glory of God. Imagine those who by faith will set aside the things of this life and pursue the things of the life to come. Imagine the blessings that are in store for those people that are now the children of God. And this is where we are transitioning now simply from the idea of salvation by grace through faith to living the Christian life. If we actually have the right mindset of faith and, and we understand our relationship to God, then, then we ought to be naturally pursuing faith with every fiber of our being because it's going to increase the glory of God on our behalf in the life that is to come. It's going to increase our, 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 our treasures in the life that is to come. Verse 11, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement, that's the covering for sin. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. That would be Jesus. And uh, he continues to speak of the free gift that has come through Jesus Christ. Verse, uh, I'm going to skip down to verse 21, that final verse there. As sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's the point. The point is that Jesus Christ has done this for us and what he does for you does not stop when you get saved. One of the things as a parent that that is a a temptation and in churches is a temptation is to kind of convince yourself that once a person has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, they've arrived. That you've accomplished your goal. Mission accomplished, right? When in fact... What we see is that that's just the beginning. That is is the first step. And then after that comes the real work. After that comes uh, the the reality of, of living in this brand new, different way. And that way is a continuation of what happened at salvation. You're saved by grace through faith. And now faith needs to come to define our lives. It needs to be the essence, the very core of the way that we live. And so uh, the next thing that we're going to do is we're going to walk through Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, in fact. And this is often called the Hall of Faith. And uh, this one's going to be broken up a little bit more. You know, they have the Hall of Fame. Well, this is called the Hall of Faith because what we're going to see as we walk through it is example after example after example of people who have shown tremendous faith And as I mentioned, we're probably not going to go through all of those examples. Um, Well, we're certainly not going to go through all of them. We're not going to park on a lot of the examples. But what we are going to do is we're going to use them to get to these various marks of of defining faith found in Hebrews 11. And they're going to help us. So let's define faith. We're, we're, We're halfway through our lesson and we're ready to define faith. Now faith is, that's a good way to to realize that we're dealing with a definition, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith is, uh, people often talk about blind faith, the idea of blind faith, but as we look at what faith says here, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It It is the thing that compels our expectation. The word hope. The word hope means a joyful and earnest expectation. I, I should have defined this one earlier. Uh, when we think about the word hope, you know, we say something to the effect of, I hope the Vikings win the Super Bowl. And that hope is rooted in, in circumstances, in a context, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's something that we would have confidence in. Now, this year, maybe uh, other years, lesser, this year, more. Right, no faith, right? We have hope. No <laughs> we have, and, and that would be the typical definition of hope, right? Hope as kind of a, a, a longing for something that may or may not happen. Well, that's not what the Bible means when the Bible says hope. Hope in the Bible is more like, um, it's a joyful and earnest expectation of something that is going to happen or something that you have every reason to believe is going to happen. It's like when you've got a plane ticket already in your hand and your bag is already packed and uh, you... you um, hope to go on vacation, right? The idea is that you, you've got the ticket, you've got the bag, you are expecting it to come to pass, and you're simply waiting for it to come. And there's that hope, that hope that vacation is, is just around the corner. You're, you're, you know, you're there and it's Thursday and you're going on vacation on Friday after work and you, have, you are welled up with hope that that vacation is almost here, right? Right? That's the idea of hope. It's something that you're longing for. We, it's, it's, it's not that you're afraid that it may not happen. You are fully confident it's going to happen. You're just not sure, in this case, not sure when, right? That's our hope. That's our desire. We are, we are, we, we are, 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 if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, your ticket is punched. You're just waiting for it to come to pass. That's what that word hope means. So when we talk about faith, faith is the substance of things that we hope for. When we talk about our expectation, our hope, our desire for heaven, our desire for reward, the substance of that desire is faith. That we believe that this is going to happen. We are fully persuaded, as Romans 3 says. We are fully persuaded that this is going to happen. And it's also the evidence of things not seen. So faith forms the evidence of that which we cannot see. Faith is the realization of it to the extent that we are not able to see it physically. Our faith is our capacity to see it spiritually. right? Faith is the ability to see that which is not visible. so that if I, uh, um, so that as I do things that would not make sense to a lot of people. I see someone in need, and the, and the Spirit of God tells me, give to that need. And I need that money. But I say, I'm not going to use that money. I'm going to take that money, and I'm going to give it to that person. So the, the, the logic, the reason, all of those things say, that's a bad decision. But faith is the evidence... My faith is the evidence of things not seen. It is the thing that tells me that by doing what God tells me to do, that is going to be more beneficial to me than by keeping this money to myself. That's faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Question on that. Let's talk about then, secondly, the effects of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 2 through 5. For by it the elders, this would have been um, the, the people that have gone before, particularly Old Testament characters, obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. This is an interesting verse. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Now we know that Jesus created the worlds. The things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. In other words, substance did not create what is. This is a great verse for someone that would try to merge theistic evolution with their faith. How do you reconcile verse 3 of Hebrews 11? That by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen, the things which are seen here now, were not made of things which do appear. In other words, the substances on this earth didn't make the other things of this earth. They were made out of nothing by the Word of God. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts and by uh, he, he being dead yet speaketh. So, of course, we know that Cain killed Abel, right? This is the first murder in the Bible. This is the, uh, in, in, in the second generation, uh, Adam and Eve's sons. Cain killed Abel, and this death was witness to the fact that he was righteous and Cain was not. That Abel, by faith, offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice. If you look at that, that account, Abel offered a lamb, and Cain offered the fruit of the ground. And God had respect unto Abel's offering, but not unto Cain's. There's a debate as to why that was. But see, Abel offered the offering he did to God by faith, saying, even if I think, even if something is more important to me, even if if I think I can give God a better offering than this lamb, which maybe he could. Maybe he could have built a huge monument to God that would have been significantly more valuable, uh, costly from a material perspective and from a time perspective than just sacrificing a lamb on the altar. But here's the the hang up. It's not what God wanted, right? What God wanted was the lamb. And Abel had enough faith to say if that's what God wants, that's what I'm going to do. Even if it doesn't make sense to me. Cain didn't have that faith. But Abel did. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God hath translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now this is important as well. So Enoch, the story of Enoch, we don't have much, all the Bible says is that Enoch was not for the Lord took him. He's one of two men in the Bible that, that did not die. Enoch and Elijah are the two men that we have in, in the record of the Bible that have never died. They were both taken up by God. So Enoch was translated and Elijah was translated. Elijah's the one we know better. Uh, he went up in a, in a flaming chariot, if you remember the story, uh, into heaven. Enoch all we, this, I mean, this, we learn more in, in Hebrews 11 verse 5 about Enoch than we learn in the entire Old Testament. We don't know much about him, but we do know this from the Old Testament, that he pleased God. And that leads us to this, the essential nature of faith. The essential nature of faith. This is such an important verse. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Two standards here. The first is that you must believe that God is, that He is who He says He is. You must believe the testimony of God, that He is who He is, that He's done what He's done, That He wants what He wants. And then you believe that He will reward you if you do it. You believe that it will be better for you if you diligently seek Him. Once again, the very essence of what it means to walk by faith is that God is true and regardless of whether I feel it or I like it or I understand it, I'm going to obey what God has to say. I'm going to do it. Even if it doesn't make sense to me. Even if, even if it, it grates on me. And I'm going to believe that by doing that, God will reward me and His rewards will be far greater than anything that I'm giving up or anything that I think I'm losing. This is faith. And faith is the only way to please God. Your works don't please God unless your works are done in faith. This is, we talked last week about the weaker brethren principle a little bit, right? And we talked about the fact that something can be sin to one person and not sin to another. Quite literally, uh, um, Greg and I could do the same action and it could be sin to me and not to Greg. If Greg is able to do it in faith before God with good conscience and faith, and if I could not do it in faith, then it would be sin to me. Now, there are certain things that no man can do in faith, right? This is not a pragmatic idea that, okay, I can, I can look at pornography in faith. No, it doesn't work that way, right? It does not work that way because the Bible explicitly says that, that we don't lust, that we don't commit adultery, that we don't commit fornication, that those are the works of the flesh. So there are objective measures. But as we talked about last week, if I, if I believed that it was sin for me to wear green shoes... And Greg knows that it's not sin to wear green shoes. Greg can wear green shoes without sinning, but if I put on a pair of green shoes, now am I objectively sinning against God by putting on green shoes? No. But if I put green shoes on my feet, thinking that green shoes that, that, that green shoes are wrong, then what is in my heart at the moment I'm putting those green shoes on? It's rebellion. I believe in my heart that I am doing something that is against God's word or that is against God's expectations, whatever it might be. And so even if it's not explicitly wrong, there will be no one on the day of judgment who will have a check mark against them for wearing green shoes. If in my heart is rebellion, wearing green shoes is not sin, but rebellion is sin. And so because I cannot wear green shoes in faith, I'm wearing green shoes outside of faith. And by putting on green shoes outside of faith, I'm not pleasing God. I'm not pleasing God. So they that come to God must believe that He is. And that doesn't just mean that He exists. That He is, that, that, that God is who He says He is, that, God, uh, that, that, that what God has said is true, that God has done what He said He's done and that he will reward those that diligently seek him. This is faith. Questions or thoughts on faith? From this, the essence, the essential nature of faith. So this is how we need to wire our brains as believers. You wake up in the morning. You decide what you're gonna do with your day. You decide what you're gonna watch on television. You decide what you're gonna listen to on the radio. You decide what you're going to say and what you're not going to say. Where you're going to go and where you're not going to go. The first question you should ask is, can I do it in faith? Can I do this in faith? Can I do this if I filter that action or that word of that movie through the fact that God is and that He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him? This is how you and I are supposed to live our lives every moment of the day. You say, well, that doesn't sound all that great. Well, that's just the thing, right? may not sound that great from a carnal perspective, but you'll do it if you believe that the reward is greater, won't you? If you believe that the reward is greater. I mean, there are some pretty drastic things that people do because the reward for doing those things is greater, right? Uh, things that, that, that uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll stick to the Vikings. I, I get a couple of Vikings tickets and I want those Vikings tickets. But if I believe that by giving those Vikings tickets away, I can be put into a better situation. Or I can, I can uh, get the leg up with someone who, who uh, is important to me, or whatever it is, then, then it's not a problem to give up those Vikings tickets, right? Because there's going to be a greater benefit for doing so. If the reward that God gives me, maybe not always in this life, but most certainly in the life to come, is greater by far, if it pleases God and is greater by far than whatever it is that I want to do, then it's not going to be a problem for me to (coughs) yield or to do what God wants me to do if I have faith. And this is what faith is. If, If you're not willing to do that, if whatever it is that God wants you to do, you're not willing to do this is what you know. That's the line where your faith ends. And we all have a line, right? We all have a line that we've drawn where our faith does not go past that line and we have to get down on our knees and say, God, help me to have more faith. Help me to push that line back on what I'm willing to trust you with, on the degree to which I'm willing to trust that you will reward me if I yield. And, and again, I'm not, I, what I'm not trying to do here is say that God is trying to take everything away from you. I'm just trying to use a generalized example so that the Holy Spirit can take it and give it to each of you in in the way that, that makes sense. So, examples, as we see here. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. The example of Noah. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became... Heir of the righteousness which is of faith. So Noah's told by God, if, if we interpret 1 Peter into it, 120 years and I'm going to destroy the world. Now Noah has a choice. God is not, I can't see him. He's told me that this is going to happen, but uh, depending on, again, how you interpret the Bible, they've never seen rain before. And God says it's going to rain. That water is going to fall from the sky. For 40 days and 40 nights and that water is going to shoot up from the earth and that the whole world is going to be destroyed. I don't see that though. I mean, I don't see the water under the earth. I don't don't see the water in the sky. He has to believe something, right? He has to weigh in the balance what his eyes see and, and the experience of several hundred years of living against what God has told him is going to happen. If he doesn't start building a boat, if he's not ready by the time that 120 years is up, then he's, he's, then, then he's in trouble, right? He's, it's not just that he can say, well, you know, when we get to a few days before the, de- the time limit, I'll decide. No, because if he only decides three days before the 120 years is up, then he's not gonna have time to build a boat. Which means he has to make a decision with enough time to allow that decision to bear the fruit of that decision in his life. And he now devotes the, his life from that point to the point of, of the, the flood. He devotes his life to preparing for that which God has said is going to come. This is an example of faith. If we believe what God's Word says about the fact that Jesus Christ is returning, that Jesus will come back for his own, that the things that we do in this life will, will matter for the life that is to come, that we are building Treasure in heaven, or that we're we're losing treasure in heaven by the things that we do. If we have the faith, if 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 we believe that, then it's going to change the way we live our lives. If it doesn't change the way we live our lives, then it's because we don't really believe it, or we've put a cap on how much that matters to us. And again, that doesn't mean I don't believe that the Lord's coming again. Maybe I just really am not convinced in my my heart that he'll come before I die. Or maybe I'm just not really convinced that those rewards in heaven are actually worth giving up something on this life. I think that oftentimes one of the things that we do as Christians is we miscalculate just how important those rewards are going to be. We don't even really think about it just how big of a deal it will be to receive those rewards. And because of that, we, we don't have the faith of Noah. I mean, for Noah, it was tangible, right? You, you, you build this ark or you die. For us, it's, it's, it's a little bit more faith even than that, right? Which is, you, you live for God, you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you go to hell, and then you live for God or you will lose your rewards. And all of that is spiritual. All of that demands a a faith that is beyond that which is tangible. But that's the example of Noah. Verses 8 through 10, the example of Abraham. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out unto a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So Abraham was told, leave everything you know. Leave your family, leave your friends, leave your country, leave your nationality, leave your comfort zone, and go to some strange place. And the Bible says that Abraham did it because what he trusted was that whatever God had for him, it was what was best for him. Example of Sarah, who was Abraham's wife. Verses 11 and 12. Eight years old when God said you're gonna have a kid and by that point she was already past the age where biologically she could have children Uh, she was she was past the age she'd already uh, um, uh, finished the years of her fruitfulness to bear children and yet she believed it and because she believed it and she 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 framed her life in faith around it God blessed her and her son became the father of many nations. Became, uh, uh, she, she, she becomes the, you know, the, the, the mother of all Israel and the mother of those who believe by faith. Verses 13 through 16. The legacy of those with faith. So we come outside of all the examples for a moment and we come to this legacy of those with faith. This is important. These all died in faith, having not received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, the physical things of this world, they might have had opportunity to have returned." But now they desire a better country, that is, and heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. The idea is this. They see God's promises, and and they died having not received them all. Abraham did not get to see his son Isaac become a multitude and a nation. Sarah did not get to see her son Isaac become a nation. Noah did not get to see, he got to certainly see the flood, but he did not get to see all of the aftermath of, uh, of his faith, but they died in faith recognizing that the, pr- that, that the bigger promises were not you'll be saved from the flood, was not that you'll have a child, it was not that you'll be brought into a land that's not your own. The bigger promises were I have a heavenly country awaiting those that love me and that there is a reward for them that will seek it with all their heart. So they lived life as strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now, what is it? Abraham was a really wealthy guy. Because Abraham lived as a stranger and pilgrim on the earth does not mean that he, he sold everything he had, he put on some fig leaves and went on top of a hill and ate, ate grasshoppers for the rest of his life. No, he was a man who was wealthy, but his wealth did not define his life. His material possessions were not the essence of himself. If God said, give them all up, he'd give them all up. If God said, leave it all behind, he'd leave it all behind. He already did, right? He did it once. The essence was not he had to live like a pauper. He had to live like a stranger and a pilgrim. As if I'm just passing through this earth. And look, if we are just passing through, that old gospel song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, right? The idea of that song is... I'm not going to plant my roots so deep on this earth, give up the time that I could be investing in God and investing in all the material things of this earth at the expense of God's will and at the expense of God's desire for me because nothing on this earth is worth losing anything in heaven. Not one thing on this earth is worth losing anything in heaven. Now, the Bible tells us through Ecclesiastes and such that God has given us the things on this earth for our, for our blessing, right? It's a blessing to be able to enjoy the things that, that this earth has to offer, to be able to enjoy food and family and friends and all of those things. These are gifts from God, but we have to see them that way. When they come to define our lives, we are outside of faith. What should define our lives is this heavenly country. And the Bible says that to those that seek that heavenly country as, as priority, I love this. God is not ashamed to be called their God. Think of that statement for a minute. The idea that God is proud to say, He's one of mine. That's a really special statement. You know, the, 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 the child who just wants to hear his father say, you did a good job. Right? And you want to hear that even just a, a little bit, even just the, you know, the pat on the back, however you, you, you perceived your father's love or, or your father's uh, um, commendation, right? Maybe it was just a wink. Maybe it was just a nod. Maybe it was something more. Maybe, maybe they were very vocal and lots of hugs and whatnot. Whatever it is though, to say my father is proud of me is, is, is a, a great thing. Now, the God of the universe who created all things and who owes us nothing and who needs us not even a little bit is proud to call you one of his own. If you seek the country whose builder and maker is God, seek the heavenly country, seek first the kingdom of God, if you put him first, if you are a stranger and pilgrim on this earth, God is not ashamed to be called your God. What a a great thing. More examples. Verses 17 17 through 19, the example of Abraham and Isaac. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Uh, Hebrews 11.20, the example of uh, Isaac and Jacob. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Uh, if you, you know, you can go back and read each one of these stories. I give you where, where and you can see how this plays out. We can't cover them all. Um, uh, verse 21, the example of Jacob himself. Where am I? Oh, yeah, okay. The example of Jacob himself. Uh, by faith, Jacob, when he was a uh, dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. So there's a story about Ephraim and Manasseh and Jacob blessing Jacob both Ephraim and Manasseh, whereas he was just supposed to bless Manasseh as the eldest, he blessed them both and actually put Ephraim above Manasseh in faith, knowing what God had told him. Believing what God had told him even above the tradition, right? By tradition, he's supposed to bless the eldest, but he said, no, God has shown me that the younger will be the greater, so I'm going to, by faith, bless the younger. That's faith. That's believing that, that, that what God says to you is more important than your traditions, more important than... than than what you know or what you think to be true. Uh, uh, Excuse me. Verse 22, uh, the example of Joseph. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. This is a big one too. So Joseph is the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Joseph is like the the Pharaoh's right-hand man. That's supposed to be off. Sorry. Um, Going the wrong way. J, uh, Joseph is the Pharaoh's right-hand man. Why should he ever want to leave Egypt? But in faith, at the end of his life, he's, he's about to be put in probably a pyramid of some sort. For, and, and I've got a really great documentary on that if you ever want to see some of, some of the pieces of where Joseph might be and all that. Anyway, he's going to be honored greatly. The entire nation of Egypt mourns when Joseph dies. But he looks at his brethren and he says, when you all leave this place, because he was sure that God was going to take them out, because God had promised back to restore them to to Canaan. When when you leave, take me with you because my heart is where God wants His people to be. My heart is not in Egypt where I've been able to be this lavish, wealthy aristocrat with all this money and all this honor and people would worship me if I let them. He says, all of that is what it is, but my heart is with my people in my land, in the land that God has promised us. That's faith. That's faith. The example of Moses' parents, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. The king says we need to kill our children or allow them to kill our children, but this child is special. God has a plan for him. I'm going to disobey the king in order to obey God. That's faith. Verses 24-27, through 27, the example of Moses in Egypt. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused So Moses has a choice to make. Moses grows up and he is the Pharaoh's daughter's adopted son, right? He is like royalty now. He's been adopted into the royal family even though he's a Hebrew child. And he hears these stories from his parents because his parents were still connected to him. We know that from the text back in in Exodus. He hears these stories about God bringing the nation out of Egypt and into this promised land. And now he has a choice to make. Well, I can be the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter and live the rest of my life completely at ease, no problems, the most dominant empire in the world, big army, wealthy land, no problem. I can do that or I can put my lot in with my people and my people are slaves and they're being beaten and they're being starved and they're being worked to death and I've got a choice now. Do I go with my people who, who are God's people and the promises of God? Do I lock myself in with the promises of God? Or do I lock myself in with the pleasures of sin for a season? He says, I choose God. I choose God's people. Even if it means suffering for me, because he saw him who is invisible. He said, God is real. And if God is real, then I want to be on his side. Even if right now my eyes are telling me this is wealth and comfort, this is shame and suffering. But God says I should be here. This is where God is, which means this is where God's blessing is, which means this is where I want to be. Even if it means some suffering. Even if it means some hard days. Even if it means some difficult circumstances. That's faith. This is what it means to have faith. Verse 28. The example of the Passover. Exodus 12. Verse 28. Through faith, he, that would be Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Verse 29, the example of the Red Sea. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians are saying to do were drowned, right? So the nation of Egypt, the waters part. The Red Sea parts. The land dries out. Now you've got a choice to make. You walk through those walls of water, all the way to the other side. I mean, once you're in, it's not like you can just, you know, those, if, the, if the walls of water start to fall, you're, you're cooked, right? You're, you're sunk. No pun intended. You're sunk if you're in the, if you're in the middle of that. So th- there's, there's a faith decision here. I can't see the God that's holding those waters back. Do I walk through them or don't I? faith says, even though I can't see it, I'm going to believe it. The Egyptians tried to do it. Of course, God had the water crash down on them. Verse 30, the example of the nation at Jericho. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. So, you get to Jericho, you've got a few choices, right? Jericho's a big city, we've got a lot of people. We try to siege the city, or we do what God says. What does God say? Walk around the wall of the city one, once for, for six days. And on the 7th day you walk around 7 times and then you shout and the priests blow their trumpets and the walls are just going to fall down. That's a silly plan. That's a silly way to siege a city. Walk around the walls, shout really loud, blow your trumpets and hope that these walls that were excessively thick, excessively thick are just going to fall down on top of themselves. So Israel had a choice. Are we going to trust that what God said, which is kind of silly? Is going to work? Or are we going to maybe just try to go around, the, just, just go around Jericho? Come back to Jericho later. Uh, you know, maybe try a Trojan horse situation. They trust God. And the walls fell down. The example of Rahab, verse 31. By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. So now Rahab has a choice. Uh, the spies go into Jericho to search out Jericho. Two spies. And Jericho knows that they're there and so they're hunting them down to kill them. And Rahab, she's a, a prostitute. She lives on the city wall and she has a choice to make. She can either hide them or she can reveal them. She can, she can get, get them caught. So now she has a choice. Do I, do I lock myself in with this city and all of the prosperity that this city has brought me? Or do I actually believe that God's going to destroy this city and so I want to I, I f- follow God? She says, I believe that God is going to destroy this city. And I want God's mercy. So she helped the spies. And not only was she given mercy, the the walls fell down. Her part did not fall down. She was brought into the nation of Israel. She became King David's great-grandmother. Which is just fascinating. More examples. Beginning in uh, uh, in Hebrews 11.32. All of these are in Hebrews 11.32. Gideon Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah in the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den. So what, what we see here is this: What shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets who through faith, subdued kingdoms wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, that would be Daniel, quenched the violence of the fire, that would be the three Hebrew children, uh, escaped the edge of the sword, out of, uh, that would be, that would be uh, David, right, as he runs from Saul. Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight. You think of David's mighty men, right? A guy takes... A guy, a guy takes a spear and he kills hundred men, hundred and fifty men, a thousand men. You think of Samson who takes the jawbone of a donkey and kills uh, several hundred Philistines with it. I mean, these, these men believed that God was going to grant them a victory and, 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 and the odds didn't matter. The odds didn't matter. An entire army standing there. One man is standing here and he says, if God is for me, I'm going to... Uh, the odds are in my favor, in fact, right? And they did that and they fought those battles and they won those battles. Turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. That's the life of Jesus Christ there, uh, as well as Elijah in Elijah's day. Others were tortured. So it's not, all, it's not all happiness. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Curse God or die. Then I'll die in faith. That they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. Literally, people were cut in half for the gospel. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. The legacy of faith is not always you win the battle. Sometimes the legacy of faith is they're, they won the battle and now I have to stand for my Lord when, when, when they are going to destroy me for my faith. Sometimes it's standing against that person. Sometimes it's standing against a family member. Sometimes it's going against a tradition. Sometimes it's, it's um, standing up against the king and knowing that the consequence of this will be dramatic. If you've ever read the stories of some of the the faith leaders um, in the in the days of of communist Russia, if you've ever read any of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, if you've ever read about uh, you know Bonhoeffer in the time of the, of, of the Nazis, um, people who said that faith matters more than my life, than the risks that I'm taking, being imprisoned and then having a right testimony within the prison, all of those things. For faith. Because, see, faith is not just about what feels good at the time or even about, um, you know, right now we're, we're in a, a fair-weather faith society. Christianity is still kind of in. Christianity has been made cool by all, all sorts of, you know, these, these um, millennial pastors and whatnot. And so faith is kind of the cool thing to do. But what happens when faith means you lose your job? What happens when faith means your, your family disowns you? What happens when faith means you can't get a job? What happens when faith means you get thrown in prison? What happens, you know, in in places in this world right now, that's what it means to have faith. Go over to Syria or go over to Egypt. Go over to one of these places where the uh, the, the a Nation of Islam and Islamic brotherhood and and uh, all of these Islamic forces are in control you follow Christ your house gets burned to the ground you get beheaded uh, you have any number of problems your 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 children are stolen from you and sold into slavery what happens on that day do you believe this stuff really believe it to where on the day where a meeting like this is illegal and we're doing this with the lights off where we hope that the government doesn't find us on that day are you still going to be in the seat? on that day are you still willing to do what's right? are you still willing to believe is, is it that real to you that if it wasn't easy and if it wasn't beneficial from a material perspective you would still serve God because that's that's actually where faith comes in. Now faith is often victorious, as we see. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes faith means suffering. But that it's the same faith. And if 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 it's not a different faith that gets to reap all the benefits of victory than the one that that gets sawn in half. The, 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 David's mighty men as they fought those battles and, and, and conquered people that was the exact same type of faith that compelled Daniel to say no I will pray unto my God and be thrown into the lion's den it's the same faith it just so happened God chose one to get victory the other one to be thrown in the lion's den of course God spared him uh, it didn't always happen that way though does it? Uh, by any means if you've never read about the martyrs of the faith, I encourage you to do so. Finally here, Hebrews 11, verses 39 and 40. The essence of pleasing God through faith. All these, having obtained a good report, pleasing God through faith, received not the promise. That means on this earth. God, having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. So they, they, they did not receive the promises of their faith on this earth. But there's coming a day when they will. And they believed that. That's why they did what they did. Now the question is, do you believe that? And, and, and how do you know? That's where James 2 comes in. That's is our final passage. We talked about this at the picnic for the few of you that were there. This is where James 2 comes in. How do you know whether or not you're actually exercising this faith? You look at the way you're living your life. Faith is rooted in spiritual distinctions not in material or physical distinctions. That's James 2, 1 through 13. But, verses 14 through 26, faith is justified, that word here meaning validated, by works. Faith presupposes works. Works validate true faith. Do you want to know whether you have faith? What do you do when you've got a decision to make? When you've got a decision to make and you know what God wants you to do, do you do it? Or do you choose your own way? This is where you know whether or not you have faith. When it's time for the way that you're living or peace with your family or traditions or the church you grew up in, when these things conflict with what you know the Word of God says, do you go with what the Word of God says or do you... For whatever reason, do your own thing. When the way that you're going to conduct business, or the way you're going to raise your children, or the way you're going to um, uh, um, do your taxes, conflicts with what the Word of God says. Do you do what the Word of God says, or do you do what's best, what you perceive is best for you? This is how you know whether or not you have faith. Does it bear fruit? So, we read in uh, James... Chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. So this is a different faith lesson. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, that would be, of course, not in the term homosexual, but the gay clothing meaning happy or bright or beautiful clothing, as, as the word used to mean. Another word that has been totally destroyed in our culture. Um, the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become the judges of evil thoughts? So the idea being, okay, so a man comes in and he's wealthy, and this was a big problem in Jewish society. This was something that they really had to unlearn when they became Christians. Because in Jewish society, wealth indicates God's blessing. The rich man is the man blessed of God. This is why Job, the book of Job, the conflict that comes up in Job, right? Job is a wealthy, wealthy man, and he's a righteous man, and then God, in order to test his faith, allows Satan to come and destroy everything he has, and his friends come, and they sit down with Job, and they want to comfort him, and their comfort is, whatever sin you have in your life, you need to repent, Job, because God, because you'd still be wealthy, and your children would still be alive if, if you weren't a dirty, rotten sinner. So you need to get, whatever it is, find it and repent. And Job's saying, I, I didn't do anything wrong. And they're saying, no, 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 no. This I know, you're a sinner because you're not wealthy anymore. Because you've had a calamity uh, occur in your life. And this is how a lot of people think about God. Bad thing happens in my life, that must mean that God's not happy. If I'm wealthy, if I'm comfortable, that must mean that I'm, I'm godly. And the Jews had that mindset. So James comes in and he says, "So d- he says, don't have, don't, don't allow your faith to to exhibit itself in respect of persons. Don't think that just because a person comes in and he's wealthy, that means he's godly. And don't think that just because a person is poor, then they, th- then you, you know, you exalt the the wealthy guy, you make the poor guy sit at your feet, or you make the poor guy go stand in the corner." He says, "Hearken, my beloved, verse five, brethren. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith?" Oftentimes you'll find that the people that have the most faith are those that have the least things on this earth. Why? Well, because they don't have the things of this earth to distract them from having faith. I'm, it's just easier. This, it, within this room represents some, some guys that are going to have a harder time having faith than the guys that I talk to in the jail every Wednesday because those guys are rock bottom. Those guys that don't have anything but faith left to hang on to. But those of us that have plenty to hang on to it's going to be harder to have faith. It doesn't mean you can't have as much faith. It just means you've, just, you've got to have a right perspective on things, right? Um, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye, speaking to the people there in the church, have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. So don't, have res- don't judge people by their outward appearance. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, saith also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill... Thou art become a transgressor. You're just as guilty if, if it says don't commit adultery and don't kill. If I only kill, but I don't commit adultery, I'm still guilty, right? I'm still guilty of breaking the law. So speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy that showeth no mercy and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. He's saying stop. Don't, don't judge people on the externalities. Don't judge people based upon the way they look or how much money they have or 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 um, how they present themselves, those sorts of things. So then, how do we judge? What, what, what is the standard by which people are elevated in, our, in, in the Christian economy? It's faith. The person with more faith is the person that you want to look to and say, I want to be like that guy. Not the person that has a bunch of money. Not the person that has, uh, that has the, the life altogether. Not the person that has... Um, the, the, you know, all, all of the, the, the blessings of this life, not the person that has the new gizmo, the person that you want to look to and look up to and say, I want to be like that guy, is the person that has faith. So how do I know who has faith? That's where verses 14 through 26. Faith is justified by works. Faith presupposes works. Works validate true faith. Verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren? Though a man say he hath faith and have not works. Can faith save him? This is not talking about being saved from our sins unto salvation. This is talking about the, the kind of salvation that Romans spoke of secondarily, which is living, can, can faith um, bring about in us, um, can, can faith outside of works, uh, I'm not explaining this properly, let me, let, me, let me go back on this a little bit. It's saying, can the type of faith that does not manifest in works be indicative of a man, a a true man of faith? Can the kind of faith that has no, no manifestation in reality be the faith that pleases God? No. And he'll explain this. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? If somebody comes up to me, a brother in Christ comes up to me and says, I don't have any food to eat today. I, have, I, I just I don't have a meal. And I look at him and I say, Wow, I'm really sorry about that. I'm going to trust the Lord that you're going to be fed. I'm going to pray for you. And the Lord bless you. Go on your way now and I have money in my pocket that I didn't give to him, is that faith? No. Uh, do, do, am I exercising the faith of God? No. Am I living in a manner that is in, in alignment with, with God's word? No. I kept that money in my pocket instead of giving it to a brother in need when he had a genuine need that, that is an indicator that there's something wrong with my faith. That that money is more important to me than my brother. And the Bible says my brother is supposed to be more important to me than money. So there's something wrong with my faith. That's the idea here. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God? thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Look, it's not enough to say that you believe in God. The devils believe in God. Verse 20, But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Do you want to know whether or not you actually have saving faith? Do you have any works? People that do the work to try to, to... Uh, people who do the works to try to earn salvation Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5 have not gotten it right but if you claim to be a believer if you claim to be a follower of Christ but there's no works like you don't follow the word of God you have no desire to follow the word of God you have no power over sin in your life if you claim to be a follower of the word of God but there are no works there is something very wrong with you whether that's you're not actually a believer or whether that's you are completely living in in, in carnality and denying the power of the Spirit of God in your life, there's something very, very wrong. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar? We, we, We didn't talk about that in full. This was well after the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was counted on him for righteousness. But how do we actually know that Abraham believed God? The Bible says Abraham believed God, but the day that we know it when we're reading the Bible is the day that God said, take your son up to the mountain, plunge a dagger into him and sacrifice him. And Abraham said, yes, sir. And he didn't make him do it, right? He, because God's never wanted human sacrifice. He spared him from that and he provided a lamb. But the idea is that Abraham was willing to take the very thing that God had promised him, the most precious thing to him, which was the, his son, and kill him if God had asked him to. That's where we know that Abraham's faith was real. Because he was willing to give up his most precious possession and even the very thing that he knew that God had given him as a promise. That's faith. Seest thou, man, or seest, seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So he says that the day that Abraham believed God and it was imputed, that day was proven to be true, validated on the day that Abraham was actually asked to make his faith mean something to him physically. And then he talks about Rahab. Um, Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out. So Rahab believed that God would destroy the city. How do we know that she believed that? because she hid the spies and let them go. If she had turned in the spies, then we'd know that that was not... She didn't actually believe the Lord would, would do what He said He was going to do because she didn't advocate for the, the spies to be saved. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Whether we're talking saving faith or whether we're talking about Christian faith, they're both... If, where there are no works faith is dead. It doesn't mean that works establish your, your righteousness with God, right? We've already, that's why we covered Romans 3, 4, 5. That's why we covered Hebrews 11 first. Without faith it is impossible to please God, right? That is it. But how do you know that you have faith? How do you know where the line of faith is in your life? Look for your works. Look for the point where what you want overrides what God wants of you. Look for the point that you're not willing to step out and say, God, I'm going to trust you with this, even though it's going to mean I'm going to anger someone or I'm going to be at a, at a, at a disadvantage materially or financially or, or, or I'm going to have to give some of my time. That's my time. And you're asking for that time to be in church or you're asking for that time to go serve someone or whatever it is. And, and, but it's my time your faith is validated on the day that you say, yep, but you're more important than th- these things in my life. And that is the essence of the Christian life. And to whatever degree you have faith and you live by faith, to whatever degree your faith compels you to obey the Word of God, to obey the Gospel, to obey the, the, the teachings of, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to that degree, this is what you can be absolutely confident about. That to that same degree, God will reward you abundantly above what you could ever expect or, or, or even understand in the life to come. Which means you've got to wait for it. Which means you've got to live today, true faith, if you really believe that, that there's a heaven and you believe that rewards are there and you believe that God is true and you believe that, that the Bible is true, then It's going to change the way you live this life. It has to. Because the rewards and the promises of that life are so much greater than this life. Even from a human's perspective, one just simply outweighs the other. That's faith. So I've been rolling and I've asked for questions on a couple of occasions. haven't really gotten any questions, comments. Uh, I did pretty good on time tonight. Questions, comments, anything to add? Yeah, so Jesus warned about this in Matthew chapter 6 and 7 that if I if I give just to be seen of men, you know, so if I if I give my anonymous gift and then I start whispering, yeah, that was me, that was me, that was me so that it kind of gets around that it was you even though it's anonymous and, it, and it's not supposed to get around that it was you, but you want it to get around that it was you, then then you've already received your reward. There's no reward in heaven for that. If I pray to be seen of men, if when I when I want to pray, I get up and I make loud, long speeches. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't pray congregationally or, or in groups, but if the point of my prayer, there was a man, and, and uh, I, I hate to use this example, but there was a man in my church growing up who, when he prayed, um, the, the, the men of the church would do a rotation of praying, praying on Sunday morning, and it was just such a pompous, fake prayer. Like, he'd get up and he'd just use all these flowery words and... You could tell that he'd kind of manuscripted it out to sound really good. Hey, 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 have you been talking to my father? <laughs> Unless I'm not, I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> so Charles has his own problems. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, and it gets all flowery and, and, and pompous and whatnot. He has his reward because what he's attempting to do is he's attempting to make everyone think that he's really godly and spiritual by the way he's praying God's not going to, re- there's no reward, divine reward for that. He said, Jesus says instead, go into your closet and pray in secret and the Lord that sees in secret will, re- will reward the openly. When you give, give in secret and the Lord who sees in secret will reward you openly. So, again, this is a heart motive thing. If, if, if I give money and somebody finds out and all of a sudden, everyone knows how much I gave. And they're all heaping praise upon me. I didn't ask for that. I didn't want that. God knows what's in my heart. I didn't desire that. It wasn't my fault it got out. The reward is still there. But if in my heart when I give, you know, is look at me, look how much I've given, look at, look at, the, look at the, the, the sacrifice, whatever it might be. I am trying to get attention, and to the extent that I get that attention, that's my reward. God, doesn't, God cannot be manipulated into having, bo- having it both ways like that. Yes, sir, Glenn? I was right at the start started talking, and Mother Teresa came, and I don't know why I was thinking of her earlier, except that they gave her a Pete, what is that, a little well fried. Mm-hmm. So she wasn't right. wasn't to judge you know, so. it didn't put any judgment out there I you know, the sure it, so when we, when we talk about it, and this is an important last point just because a person does good works doesn't necessarily mean they have faith and, and they might actually be using the good works to try and earn their way to heaven, right? Some of the most moral people among us are Mormons, uh, who are the Latter-day Saints, um, the, 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 um, the Jehovah's Witness, and the um, Orthodox Jews, all of which deny the basic gospel of Jesus Christ. They're the most moral people among us, but they have to be the most moral people among us because that's how they think they're going to get to heaven. Now, that is not their faith validating their... or their works validating their faith. That is their works defining their faith system and their hope. So again, this does not mean that we can just look at someone and say, oh, because they have the works, that must mean intrinsically they have faith. So this is not really an opportunity for us to look out as much as it's an opportunity to look in. Why are you doing what you do? And if you say you have faith... Is it proven in the way you live? Does the way you live really prove it? Now, the opposite is very easy. So in other words, uh, you, you see a televangelist who's talking about his faith, but the way he lives is completely opposite of what the Word of God says. You know that it's not faith, right? You can see from the negative example very clearly who doesn't have faith. It's a little harder to see who does have faith because they might be using their works to define their relationship with God, rather than to um, live by faith. So, who doesn't have faith is a bit easier to see than who does. But really, we're intended to turn inward and say, do I have faith? Is what I am doing by faith? When I go to church, is it actually in faith? See, if you go to church every Sunday, but you're doing it for all the wrong reasons, you're doing it to pacify your wife, or to because if, if you don't, then someone's gonna uh, be grumpy with you, or or a pastor's gonna call and get on your case, or or um, or whatever. That's not going to church in faith. That's not pleasing God. That's not a faith that's that's not a work that's validating your faith. That's a uh, that that's that's a work that's trying to validate some externality, trying to please some externality. And this is where, again, we said a man can go to church and be in the right, and a man can go in the church and be in the wrong. Go to church and be in the wrong. Now, should, should we go to church? According to Hebrews, yes, we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Hebrews says that. But faith is when I say, I'm doing this in obedience to the Lord for the Lord, not I'm doing this for any of these other external reasons. So it's very much an internal introspection tonight. Intended to help each of us push forward in our Christian life. And actually next week as we talk about the spirit realm, uh, some of this is going to, I think, merge with some, some reality here. As we talk about manifestations of the spirit realm in this world, some of which have very much so crept into the church. And the reason why is because the church is not, not willing to take what God's word says compared to culture and then say which one is more important. Culture, culture has won out in a lot of instances which has brought um, some real negative consequences because the church doesn't have enough faith to say we're not going to go there, we're not going to associate with that because of its demonic or its negative spiritual um, roots. So we'll talk about that more next week uh, and perhaps a lot of this will, will find a place of, um, of relevance But I hope that in each one of your lives, as as I was teaching, the Holy Spirit was taking it and saying, you know, this is your line of faith. This is where your your works have validated your faith, and this is where you say you have faith, but you actually have absolutely nothing, no works to back up the fact that you're saying you have faith. You say, I believe this, and I believe that, and I believe that, but your works actually testify that you don't, because if you did believe that, it would change the way you live, right? So that's faith, defining faith. Any other questions or thoughts? All right, back here, same time, same place next week. Did I miss them? Oh, I. I oh, yeah, there are. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I, my notes stopped at page 10 of 16, goodness. So I didn't, I, I didn't, uh, here, here I thought I, I was right on time. On time let, me, let, let, let me give you these here. So thy faith has made thee whole. Uh, various times where we see people's actions pursuing Christ, making them whole. Um, faith and its results are not limited to certain people. Uh, as we see... Um, from Matthew 15. The only limitations to any spiritual task in life is God's will and man's faith. This is the faith of a mustard seed removing mountains. The only limit. Uh, yep. And, yep, then prayer and faith uh, for wisdom and for healing. So, my apologies. Yeah, I, I don't know what happened there, but... Good. See you here next week. Thanks for your time.